Man, Jay, Magneto's backstory makes me so sad. It is definitely a tearjerker, yeah. Especially the part after he's out of the concentration camp and he's settled down, and then he loses his young kid. That seems like a particular shame. Does it, though? Yes? Well, in a vacuum, yeah, obviously, but you gotta consider the larger context here. What, arson? No, no, I mean, what would have happened otherwise? Is this one of those he-had-to-lose-everything-to-become-the-man-the-world-needed kind of things? What? No, no, it's nothing like that. It's just, the thing is, there is a universe where Anya survived, and she definitely... Turned out to be a jerk? Murdered both her siblings and indirectly her father. What?! And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 233 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to yet another episode that I've been excited about doing for a long time. I feel like now that we're in the era uh, where I was like buying comics every week, like every other episode, there's some little memory that just kicks off this burst of childhood joy. Yeah, one of the advantages to the sudden explosion of the volume of X material in the early mid-90s is that while there was a lot more junk, there was also a lot of good stuff mixed in there. When you're publishing that many titles at, at a time, you know, they're, they're, you're casting a wide enough net that there are going to be some absolute gems in there. And there really are, and we're looking at some of them today. Specifically, we're looking at a new X-Men title. This is a title called X-Men Unlimited, and it was a quarterly, prestige format, glossy page, more expensive than usual, series of one-shots. It ran for 50 issues, which, you know, when it's only quarterly, that's quite a number of years. And eventually it got kind of meh. But early on, X-Men Unlimited, I was excited every time an issue came out because I knew, based on every issue I'd read so far of the series, it was going to be a stellar one-shot with either some amazing new continuity or an amazing look at some of the characters I loved so much or just really good storytelling or really good art. So I love the idea of X-Men Unlimited. This is a series of standalone stories that take place a little removed from the main ongoing plot in X-Men and usually focus on one or two specific characters. And honestly, this is something I wish more lines did and I wish more lines would continue to do now. Stuff like X-Men Unlimited, those those side standalone stories, those more focused one-shots are a great place to develop um, when you're looking at things like digital first books or even free web serials, um, especially if you're primarily a print publisher. And it's something I'd love to see more folks explore, especially when you've got a line as wide and in that respect forbidding as X-Men. So the way you described X-Men Unlimited, Jay, it actually reminds me of another type of X-Men and really superhero comic and general publication, that being the annual. Now, we've covered a number of annuals over the history of the podcast. Many of them have been single chapters in crossovers that consisted of multiple annual issues. Uh, right now, we're in the midst of covering the 93 annuals that all introduced new characters. But one thing that often happens with annuals is that they're a little bit gimmicky, not always, but often. And X-Men Unlimited... It avoided that pitfall. Like, yeah, there was big stuff going on, but you could just read an issue of X-Men Unlimited. You could just pick it up and have a complete story. It avoided that pitfall, 
because it didn't have to be climactic. It didn't have to be tied in really to anything else. And I think most critically, it didn't have to work in as much of the cast as possible. Something you consistently see in annuals is that they're big ensemble numbers. They're trying to pull as many characters and as many references back in as possible. They're the big, you know, annual extravaganza. You see the same for, you know, landmark issues like 50 or 100 or whatever. And Unlimited, again, is a place to focus in a little more tightly and tell those short and standalone stories. And if you've been listening to this show for any length of time, you know that I am a sucker for self-contained stories. So why X-Men Unlimited? And for that matter, why Fantastic Four Unlimited or Spider-Man Unlimited, the two big concurrent Unlimited books? Well, the way the calendar works, because our calendar is freaking bizarre, you get five Wednesdays a month about four times a year. Now, there were four core X-Men team books at the time, if you look at X-Men, Uncanny X-Men, X-Factor, and X-Force. They still weren't quite counting Excalibur yet. So, assuming each of those books comes out one of the Wednesdays of the month, four times a year, you're going to have a fifth Wednesday, and well, that's where you put out X-Men Unlimited, or Spider-Man Unlimited, because there were also four core Spider-Man titles in the early 90s. Fantastic Four Unlimited, well, the pattern breaks there, as it does for Midnight Suns, 2099, and Cosmic Powers, three other Unlimited books. Actually, maybe there were more Midnight Suns books. I don't really know. All I know is that the Darkhold Redeemers is a really cool team name. I'm, I'm just imagining the alternate universe in which the Marvel line was built largely around Midnight Suns. I mean, it kind of briefly was. If X-Men hadn't been so big, then we would remember this era as the Midnight Suns era. I mean, I, for one, went and watched Midnight Suns every Saturday morning while eating my Midnight Suns breakfast cereal. Oh, and the theme song they had? So memorable. Right? All of those bells? Doing the entire thing on bells, xylophones, and percussion instruments was a really brave move for the era. That recorder solo, though, that was what made the whole thing. Are, are you talking shit about the recorder, Miles? Are you implying that the recorder is a joke instrument? Because both Johann Sebastian Bach and I will fight you. No, 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 I'm talking about the recorder that in continuity Ghost Rider had. He had his penance recorder solo that he would play, and he would cause everyone to feel all the pain that they had ever caused, but like, you know, whimsically. I am 99% sure that you're lying, but I don't quite know Ghost Rider well enough to be certain. You'll never know. There's no way of ever finding out. So, let's just jump immediately into X-Men Unlimited number one, Follow the Leader. But I'm not really done imagining Ghost Rider now, like in the Neilds specifically, which are the only contemporary bands I know that include periodic solos on very small recorder. No time to ponder. Let's talk about X-Men. <sighs> Fine. We're going to start, appropriately, at the beginning with X-Men Unlimited number one. This is a story called Follow the Leader. It's written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Chris Pachalo, inked by Dan Panosian, and colored by Glynis Oliver. And this is Chris Pachalo's first X-Men work, isn't it? I do believe it is. And it's interesting, because the Chris Pachalo we see here doesn't have the incredibly instantly recognizable style that he later will in books like Generation X or even more Generation Next, the Age of Apocalypse equivalent. Chris Pachalo is a really fun artist to follow over a long period of time because his style very much has continued to evolve over time. What you're describing as his signature look as the definitive Pachalo is very much the 1990s Pachalo, and the way he was drawing in the early to mid-aughts versus the way he was drawing in the early to mid-teens are two other totally different stages of his development as an artist. That's very true. I do remember the Age of Apocalypse miniseries he did. It was actually a sequel to the Age of Apocalypse event that came out many years later, where in a lot of the panels, you couldn't actually tell what you were looking at. You're like, maybe that's a sleeve or maybe it's a building. I don't know. 
Yeah, that's that's sort of around the same era, or at least the same stylistic era, as the Assault on Weapon Plus arc of New X-Men, which is what I think of as Bachalo's shaky etch-a-sketch phase. But the Bachalo we see here, there are little hints of his golden 90s look. Like, characters over-emote, their eyes kind of bug out, and their faces go wide when they're surprised. They'll grit their teeth, their body language is just that much more intense than it would be in real life. Chris Bachalo is an artist of exaggeration, both anatomical and expressively, and I fucking love his style. It's also always really fascinating to go back to this work and to see more of him doing slightly more classical superhero comics if, like me, you were introduced to his stuff via series like Death, The High Cost of Living. Oh, yeah. Chris Bachalo was, of course, the artist that did both that and Death, The Time of Your Life, uh, two of the better Sandman spinoffs. Right. But going back to X-Men Unlimited number one, which is what we're actually talking about today, the story opens in Antarctica. Um, This is proper frozen Antarctica, not the part with the dinosaurs. And there... Everyone's favorite evil Creole crayon, Sienna Blaze, has just knocked the blackbird out of the sky on its way back from a social visit to the Savage Land. Now, there were three X-Men on board, Cyclops, Storm, and Professor X, and they're all seriously injured, but Storm is in particularly bad shape because one of the byproducts of Sienna Blaze's powers is basically shredding the local electromagnetic field. And as the issue opens in the immediate aftermath of this devastating attack, in fact, we don't even find out what happened until later, I just love the way Bachalo portrays it. We have this whiteout blizzard. We have a bleeding, battered Scott Summers with red optic vapor leaking out of his eyes because he's lost his visor and he's having to hold his eyes shut because he doesn't even know if the bodies of his friends are right there in front of him. Like, do Cyclops' powers work that way? I don't think so, but goddamn if it isn't evocative, goddamn if it doesn't just immediately sell the sheer desperation of all of this. It also highlights something that's been portrayed really inconsistently and often discussed, most recently I think on a Twitter thread involving Matt Rosenberg, which is what if any evidence of Cyclops' powers exists when his eyes are closed or when he's wearing his glasses or visor, whether there's any sound, whether there's any, you know, leaking energy, whether as Bachalo draws throughout this, as far as I can tell, the skin in front of his eye sockets just glows red all the time when his eyes are closed. And again, that's something that's been wildly inconsistent in the comics. So derive what you want from it. Uh, This is one of those things that probably either you like or you don't. I like it. And what I also like is a little later in the issue, when Storm tries to quell this unnatural blizzard using her powers and utterly fails, we see the way that Storm sees the weather. We hear about how her life has been gray and dull with all of the tragedies that have occurred in in her life with her parents getting killed when she was young and stuff like that. But the color came back into the world and the weather, and we see this psychedelic shitstorm of glory that is apparently the way the weather looks to Storm. We see Chris Bachalo suddenly have a psilocybin-fueled window directly into the style we'll see in a couple of years. It's kind of like that one uh, panel that Bill Sienkiewicz draws of Storm in the first Dracula mm-hmm. issue of X-Men, where you're like, oh, that's Sienkiewicz, right. Uh, first of all, I think in terms of at least that panel, you're thinking of Glynis Oliver, who's the colorist and, and largely responsible for the psychedelia. Well, credit where credit is due there, absolutely. But the line work that we see Bachalo draw, the fact that it's just this, I don't know, it looks like if a tie-dyed t-shirt melted into madness. It's wonderful. But yes, Uh credit to Glynis Oliver as well. She's super rad. That's interesting because for me, the places that Bachalo is most immediately recognizable are actually Sienna Blaze and specifically the way he draws her face and hair. 
I can definitely see that as well. Or there are a couple of panels where Xavier is surprised, where you're like, yeah, that's Bachalo. Human beings don't look like that, but they do in Bachalo comics, and I kind of wish they did in real life, except that would be nightmarish, maybe. So, as I mentioned, Sienna Blaze's powers interact with and rip up local electromagnetic fields, and just as that's, you know, freaking storm out, it's also preventing Sienna's significant support staff from determining for certain whether she's killed the X-Men who were in the plane she took down. Luckily, I guess, for Sienna, the Game Master pops in, and he knows everything all the time, so he's able to confirm that A, the X-Men are still alive, and B, there are in fact not three, but four powerful mutants hanging around Antarctica, presumably not counting Sienna Blaze herself. The fourth is Magneto. You're not going to find that out this issue. In fact, that's not going to come up until Uncanny X-Men 310, but now you know. Welcome to the Illuminati, I guess, kind of. Better the Illuminati than the Upstarts, because yeah, this is another Upstarts plot. This is Sienna Blaze trying to kill the three leaders of the X-Men to get a bunch of points so that she can win whatever the hell the prize has been determined to be this week. But I gotta say, I mean points to her for uh going into hard mode immediately if like if you want high value mutant targets you could do a lot worse than xavier cyclops and storm true that although as i'm going to talk about in a second there are better ways she could have handled this so this story has three major threads running through it and as we discussed x-men unlimited is sort of a place to develop and look into places that you wouldn't necessarily get to go with fast-paced ongoing stories and here what we've got are relationships between three of the most central X-Universe characters, some really, really cool exploration of the ways, the different ways that the three of them are amazingly good strategists and even more so working together, and finally, some very, very, very silly pseudoscience involving electromagnetic fields. And I want to talk about the last one of those first, because electromagnetic fields and electromagnetic radiation were basically the gamma rays of the early mid-90s. They were the superpower that everything connected to. They were the hand-wavy science that justified everything. If it had been, you know, 10, 15 years later, it all would have been quantum, but it's 1994 and it's all electromagnetic. And unfortunately, unlike gamma radiation, um, electromagnetic theory is something about which I don't really know enough to be able to call bullshit in a useful and informed way. So... I reached out to planetary astronomer uh, Becca Stareyes, that's her Twitter handle, and we'll link to that um, in the visual companion, she's fantastic, uh, to talk about Sienna Blaze's powers, how they work, and really whether they'd work. And I want to go through a chunk of what she says, because it's interesting stuff, and also because this is something, this is this is a theme, and this is a, a powers explanation that's going to be following us for a really long time, that it's going to be really central to the next big arc we're covering. So, Becca says, EM waves cover everything from radio waves, microwaves, infrared, visible, ultraviolet, X-rays, and gamma rays. But if you can make magnetic fields and change them, you can make electric fields and vice versa, and also you have various forms of light. So, in short, those powers are going to cover everything from microwaves to laser space. So, pretty much all of the energy powers around are technically also electromagnetic powers. Um, and... Becca says that basically full control over electric and magnetic fields would be a really, really substantial power. For instance, it would be very, very easy for Sienna to make the Blackbird crash and cut out communications just by disrupting electronics. 
And also, if she were able by some means to locally disrupt the Earth's magnetic field, that would likewise pretty much get in the way of any kind of transmission and would take a while to to actually fix, although probably not as long as the comic actually implies. The point where it gets tricky is Sienna's ability to make things explode. Becca writes, I suppose the electromagnetic force is what keeps electrons from flying off, and electrons are what mediate chemistry, so turning the base into ionized plasma would likely release some energy. But if one has that sort of control, well, she could vaporize anyone in the room with her, and she wouldn't need to down their plane over a hostile ice field. She also points out that the human nervous system is partially electrical in nature, which again, has some other implications for possible use of Sienna's powers. There's also a really big difference in scale between blowing up bases and locally disrupting the EM field of the Earth and splitting the planet like a melon, all of which are listed as side effects of Sienna's powers. Uh, Becca says, Earth has a lot of gravity holding it together, and gravity is not an electromagnetic phenomenon. Sienna's teleportation, finally, which she claims works through electromagnetic fields and creates a vacuum into which other electromagnetism rushes in explosively, makes no sense whatsoever. Like, that one is just entirely off the rails. We're going to be talking about all of this even more as we go into Fatal Attraction, so kids, I really hope you like science. Or, as the case may be, science, which is very much distinct from science. The one point where I'll say... I can sort of explain my, my way out of this, is the point where Sienna Blaze could technically vaporize people, could do all sorts of things that would work better than what she did. This is literally the third time she's used her powers. She doesn't have a very good grasp on them, and so she's just going for these big, outrageous explosive effects because they're what she knows she knows how to do. If she sat down and took a couple physics courses, I think she'd probably be a lot more dangerous. Ah, but you forget that Sienna Blaze, in addition to being the world's most dangerous crayon, is somebody who doesn't really care about anything. She's sort of the ultimate cool kid 90s nihilist. She talks a couple times about how, yeah, she knows that every time she uses her powers, it could basically end the world, or at least mostly end the world, and she doesn't give a shit. So I feel like she probably wouldn't have the patience to go to class and take notes and stuff. And that's why when push comes to shove, alchemy will always win. <laughs> I was going to say that's why Captain America is cooler than Iron Man, because he's all about earnestness, and Iron Man's all about irony, and Iron Man can suck a fuck, that jerk. But they are also both about understanding the forces they're working with. Well, that's very true. So, uh, Sienna Blaze, basically, you're not as cool as either of them. Speaking of understanding the forces you're working with, I want to move on to strategy. The situation that Xavier, Storm, and Cyclops are in reads to me like some kind of incredibly complex word problem. You're stranded in a deadly environment with a concussed, paraplegic telepath. The person who could repair any of your equipment is functionally blind and has maybe a couple hours before his injuries become acutely life-threatening. You are in the remains of a plane, which are too heavy for your weather manipulator to move, even were she not severely compromised by the side effects of the blast that took you down. You have no means of contacting the outside world, one snowmobile, and not nearly enough fuel to reach anything, even if you knew where anything was. Also, at least initially, you're all separated, and the wind is too loud to carry sound over any significant distance. This sounds like the world's most expensive escape room. Oh god, the world's most expensive and unpleasant escape room. I don't know, I was in this sort of like serial killer Saw-themed escape room a while back, and that was really scary, so I might prefer this one. Although it was also really fun, so maybe I wouldn't. Well, 
As in any good escape room, the answer here is basically really good teamwork, which these three execute from the moment of the attack, and in particular, teamwork that's aided by the fact that they know each other really, really well, in addition to all being brilliant and fairly different strategists. And that's one of the things I especially appreciate about this issue. Cyclops and Storm haven't really been on the same team in a very long time. Like, Cyclops was an X-Factor forever, Storm was leading the X-Men, and even once they were all X-Men, they were the leaders of different squads, and everybody forgets, well, some people forget, that Storm and Cyclops have an enormous amount of history together. They worked together for ages. They had the whole thing where Storm took over the X-Men from Cyclops, it got all complex and tangly, and there were all these emotions— and it's so nice to see the two of them working on a goal together without a bunch of other characters stealing the spotlight. Well, we've seen that a lot on and off over the years, just how how close the two of them are as friends. Something else we haven't seen a lot of, though, is Xavier in basically a pure relationship with either of them as, you know, another of the X-Men's leaders, which is very much the case here. Um, I'm not going to go into the details of every stage of this because it's it's basically a lot of long-running problem solving and honestly you should all go read the issue yourselves it's on marvel unlimited and if you're not on marvel unlimited it's very very easy to find physical copies of for very cheap um but i will give one really good example from the beginning of of the issue after they've crashed um when cyclops wakes up unable to see because his he doesn't have his visor anymore in the snow his voice doesn't carry enough to call out to anyone, but he's able to basically think as loudly as he can, which wakes Xavier up, and then Xavier has Cyclops piggyback on Xavier's sight to go get to Storm. Yeah, so Cyclops is seeing himself move toward his own field of vision because he's looking through Xavier's eyes. It's so cool. Like, Scott Lobdell, as a writer, he's really good at just putting these little pieces into place and building this intricate little creation, this contraption, even if he does occasionally ignore continuity or um, have uh, perhaps less than well-thought-out plot bits. When he's paying attention, he is paying attention. Or, you know, aggressively sexually harass people on panels. Uh, yes, that's also a terrible plan, and um, no one should do it. So uh, don't do that, anybody. Anyway, uh, they're also ultimately saved from this by a very, very well-timed rescue from Psylocke and Bishop, who stick around for just long enough to intercept the escape capsule that the, the three X-Men managed to get, get out. Which kind of brings me, then, to the person stuff. So we... we mentioned before that we mostly see these three in context of their leadership roles, and those are mostly separate. So having the three of them isolated from the rest of the X-Men, isolated from their teams, is a great way to get into their heads and look more closely at their relationships with each other. In particular, Scott's and the professors, because Storm mostly spends this issue fainting a lot. With a little bit of downtime while Storm's unconscious and while they wait for the next phase of their plan to be feasible— Cyclops asks Professor Xavier a question that's often been asked of Cyclops himself. Since the day you threw open the doors of your own home, since you created the X-Men, your entire life has been a sacrifice for your students. You even left Lalandra to be with us. What about you, sir? When do you get to live your own life? I'm certain I could ask you the same question, Scott. The difference being, I don't have a life before we met. There wasn't a single night at the orphanage that I didn't lie awake for hours staring at the ceiling, wondering why my brother Alex got to leave, and I had to stay and be passed up by every potential parent in the state of Nebraska. 
Then, one day, you arrived. It's probably worth noting that this is yet a different version of Cyclops' backstory than the last several we've gotten. Everybody forgets about Jack of Diamonds. Maybe it's because he sucked. You knew about my secret, my optic blast, and you told me I was okay. More than okay. That I was destined for something special. You entrusted me with your dream. I never had anything to sacrifice, Professor, because my life began with the X-Men. Then you're wrong, son. Our motives are not as different as you might think. There is nothing I wouldn't do for any of my students. Now, I'd like you to do something for me, Scott. Anything. Stop calling me Professor. I don't know what you're talking about, pro Sir. If you'll excuse me, I should plug up this tear in the cockpit before it widens. Certainly, but don't change the subject. Every student of my first graduating class has reconciled themselves with addressing me as a person rather than their instructor. Henry, Jean, Bobby, Warren, they all have, at one time or another, called me Charles. If we are to die here, and now, in the middle of nowhere, I would very much like it to be as equals, rather than a student and teacher. You're being ridiculous. I could call you... by your first name. I believe you're bluffing. Let me just attend to this first. Use some debris to block the wind. Now I believe you're stalling. Not at all. I want everything in its place when I pulverize it with my blast. There you go. There you go. Charles, say it with me, Scott. I could call you, call you by your first name if I wanted to. I just choose not to. Yes, well, I applaud your self-control. This fucking nerd. Okay, I think Scott probably has actually called Professor Xavier Charles by this point in continuity, but I love this scene. I love that we get to see a side of Cyclops that isn't just pain-in-the-ass Boy Scout in the early 90s. This is the Scott Summers that I love. This is the Scott Summers who's a dork named Slim. Like, he's back. The Storm I love is back. The Xavier I love is back. This, this is my favorite version of all of these characters in the early 90s. So, with that, let's move on to the second issue, which is, again, a really amazing character study. This is X-Men Unlimited number two, Point Blank. Written by Fabian Nicieza, penciled by Jan Dersima, inked by Dan Panosian, Keith Williams, Jimmy Palmiotti, and Joe Rubenstein, and colored by Marie Javins. So, Fabian Nicieza, we know. Jan Dersima? I love Jan Dersima. Uh, she did... Almost all of Star Wars Legacy, my favorite Star Wars comic that Dark Horse put out a number of years ago. And she's really good at drawing both action and talking heads. And that's good because this issue is a lot of characters talking. There's not actually a lot of big explodey stuff, although that is there and Dursima just nails it. For the most part, it's emotional conversations and especially understatedly emotional conversations. And it stays engaging the whole time. This is what I tend to think of as a montage issue, something that goes between a lot of flashbacks and a lot of characters talking about a specific thing. Now, this issue actually takes place partway through Fatal Attractions, the upcoming crossover we're going to be covering, but I actually kind of like it as a prequel instead. And in fact, thanks to good old shipping and editorial delays, 
this came out before some of the Fatal Attraction stuff that it references. So we're going to go for it, even though technically we shouldn't until later. And as the issue opens, we get Magneto looking terrifying and majestic as he just tears the fuck up in a battlefield. There are people being ripped apart, tanks being thrown everywhere, and him just looking impassive and wreathed in coruscating energy and also coruscating narration. First of all, great word. And second, it occurs to me that this issue is kind of built around a theme that we're going to see explored in a lot of detail much later by Cullen Bunn in his Magneto solo series, which are the people whose lives are kind of defined by Magneto and by his proximity. Absolutely. And the main character of the issue, who we'll get to momentarily, his narration gets that across perfectly. When I first saw him, it was like looking directly into the sun at high noon, simply overwhelming in his brilliance, domineering at his superiority, prostrating in his arrogance. He was everything I was led to believe he would be. Magneto, one of the most powerful mutants on the face of the planet. And this flashback is from many years ago when East German soldiers attacked Wundagore Mountain, which is a mountain that the High Evolutionary kind of runs, and it's a long story, but the point is it factors into Magneto's own backstory. And the narrator himself is a man named Adrian Eiskalt. He is escaping the battlefield. He's one of the few survivors of Magneto's retaliation, along with his brother Uta. Now, Uta is actually a uh, women's name in uh, German, as I understand it, but that's this character's name, so we're just going to go with it, and that's totally fine. They flee, and they stumble to a cabin and meet a cow lady named Bova. Hey, I love Bova. Bova is great, and Bova consistently deserves so much better than she ever gets narratively. Well, what she gets right now is to tell Adrian and Uta to get the hell out of there because they have just stumbled into a tombstone and knocked it over, that tombstone bearing the name Magda. That's right, this is the memorial to Magneto's dead wife, so they just ran away from Magneto because he they were attacking him, and now they um, defiled his wife's grave, so that's not good. In their defense, that was a pretty flimsily installed tombstone. Yeah, true. You'd think Magneto would, like, have some big pillar of iron going down to the Earth's core to hold it in place or something. Or at least a pretty solid foundation. But, yeah, it's it's Vundagar Mountain. Weird stuff happens all the time. I assume there were, like, burrowing spider gnomes or something. Yeah, that's Gans. And Magneto chooses that moment, of course, to arrive understandably furious. Uta raises his hands, but Magneto will have none of that. Surrender yourselves. Isn't that what my family did? What my wife did? What I did time and again? Surrender myself to your tender mercies, only to have that thrown back into my face through the pain, misery, and death your kind has inflicted on me and mine? And Uta, Adrian's brother, explodes. So then you now know the pain of loss as sharply as do I. Not much difference between human pain and mutant pain, is there? Nor, apparently, in what it does to a person in the long term. Speaking of which, I've been watching season two of The Punisher, which is a really interesting thing to come out of and straight into discussing this issue, since that season is basically about all of the different ways that violence and PTSD mess people up. 
After Adrian's therapist years later continues to urge him to stop living through hate and just chill out and be a person, Adrian decides instead to fly to New York, to fly to a meeting he's planned, which is all about the apparently currently dead Magneto, because this part of the issue takes place before Fatal Attractions and after X-Men Volume 2, Number 3. As far as the world knows, Magneto is dead, but still discussed because in Adrian's hotel, he watches a debate between J.D. Chambers, the author of a book called Fatal Attractions, and also he's going to be the character Empyrean in X-Men Annual Number 2. We'll get to that. Chambers is debating, oh... Graydon Creed, who's being a bigoted fuckstick like he always is. I was gonna say, you you say that like it's something new. I hate that guy. But yeah, the topic of Magneto does come up, because of course, when you're discussing the rights and morality and dangers and whatever of mutants, Magneto is going to be one of the first people to come to mind. And Chambers, whom I keep on referring to as Chamber, but who is absolutely not Chamber, argues. Just like our founding fathers, or Martin Luther King... Magneto's was a voice raised to be heard above the protests of the majority ruling classes. And Graydon Creed, being Graydon Creed, replies, So is Hitler's. Eh, Godwin's law. Adrian hates this debate in general. He hates the idea that Magneto can be more than one thing, that he can be complex. He knows that Magneto was a murderer. That's it, straight up. He was a murderer and he needs to die, and that is why Adrian is in New York. This story and Adrian's arc covers one of the things that we've talked about on the podcast and something it's really cool to see explored in continuity, which is Magneto's journey from Silver Age mustache-twirling over-the-top villain to the conflicted teacher of the Bronze Age to the mutant supremacist, once again villain, of the early 90s. And that right there is one of the reasons that, along with Storm, Magneto is one of my favorite X-Men characters. Yeah. He's not just, you know, the pure paragon of justice or the gritty badass who doesn't give a shit or whatever. Magneto is a ton of different things, and all of those things contradict each other and complement each other perfectly. You can't give just the elevator pitch for Magneto without doing a grave disservice to much of his personality. You lose something. And credit to Niseza, who does this fairly consistently and accomplishes this fairly consistently, this is a great example of a writer using the inconsistencies and long history of superhero comics to craft a much more compelling and coherent narrative than any of those eras would have given us alone. Yeah, and in that regard, Niseza is following very much in Chris Claremont's footsteps with Magneto. Yeah, yeah. Elsewhere in New York, specifically at Empire State University, Gabrielle Holler is giving a talk about Magneto. Now, you may recall that Gabrielle Holler, in addition to being Legion's mom, is the former Israeli ambassador to Great Britain. She was also a former patient and then lover of Charles Xavier, hence Legion, and a former friend of Magneto. Empire State University is having a lecture series called Demagogues of the 20th Century, But Holler isn't content to look at it as something that simple. Once again, she knew Magneto when he was alive, and he wasn't just one thing. And I love the way this is done visually, because you get the impression that there's this big-ass movie screen taking up the entire stage behind Holler, as you just see black and white images of old pictures of Magneto, of the Holocaust, of concentration camps. It really does just hammer home the sheer gravity of Magneto's past. I want to take 
a second and digress here to talk about Dursuma's art. Because you mentioned this is mostly a, a talking heads issue. There's a lot of conversation. There's some background and backstory, but largely it's people talking about someone. And Gabriel Haller and the way Dursuma draws Gabriel Haller is a great study in how to make that kind of story interesting because the body language she establishes for Haller, the facial expressions and the mannerisms are so distinct and so narratively powerful. Haller appears periodically throughout this whole comic, and she's always got this very, very tight, closed-off posture. She chain smokes continuously, but she also gestures with her cigarette a lot. So you've got, you know, smoke trails creating a more dynamic page than you might otherwise have in a basically static conversation. And you've got her facial expressions, which again are just very, very closed off and to the point where a shift in them feels very significant. And Dursima uses all of those things incredibly effectively to create a whole kind of second level of narrative. So if I recall correctly, I read X-Men Unlimited number two before I read some of the big Gabrielle Haller stories, like the one with Legion, the flashback where she and Xavier and Magneto were in Israel. And even without knowing much about her, Dursima's art, exactly like you're saying, Jay, it tells you so much. You see this woman who's incredibly competent, incredibly controlled and tightly wound, but because she's had to be, you see all of her history in her posture, the way that she is firm and almost angry with anybody who she sees as being a fool, her body does that along with her words. It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. This, it's it's phenomenally good characterization. And it's something that I think is, is a great lesson. I mean, Dursima in general is an artist who bridges characterization and action scenes incredibly well. Like, she draws great fights, and she also draws great conversations. And... She's a great study in the extent to which that combination is really critical for doing superhero comics well. Man, now I want to read Star Wars Legacy again. I kind of always want to read Star Wars Legacy again. Listeners, if you like Star Wars, like, that's the series I would recommend above any others. It's so much fun. What we find out here, though, as Holler describes what her research has found, because of course she's very much an academic, we learn about Magneto's backstory. Now, before we get into it, I want to point out this is not Magneto's actual backstory. It was assumed to be for many years, but it'll turn out this was a cover story Magneto put forth so that people wouldn't come after him and his family after the Holocaust and stuff like that. But for all intents and purposes, Eric Magnus Lenger, as we learn that Magneto is really named, he's the real Magneto. And this is one of those rare, rare times when we get very specific dates and locations in a character's background and backstory. And I think that's a thing you can get away with with Magneto because of the artificial aging in ways that are harder with other characters sometimes. Well, and also the fact that the Holocaust, a very specifically timed historical event, is vital to his backstory. You can't have Magneto without the Holocaust. You can have Tony Stark having gotten captured in any given war, but with Magneto, no, it's World War II. That's true, and that's something, yeah, that's something that comes up in our questions a lot, sort of what's going to happen to Magneto as a character when it doesn't make sense for there to be, you know, when the Holocaust has 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 fallen out of living memory. Yeah, I I honestly don't know. I mean, I just don't think you could have Magneto be Magneto without having survived Auschwitz. Yeah, I, I don't think yeah, there there have been there have absolutely and unquestionably been horrible genocides since then. I say as if there's anything other than a horrible genocide. Like you can have a moderate you know, afternoon tea genocide or something, but um, no, that but but none I think that have that that effectively stand in can can stand in narratively for that, and yeah, that's something something that 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 
I, I think about a lot in terms of characterization of Magneto in the comics and sort of what that's going to mean in the next, in the coming years. Well, before we dive back into heavy historical shit, which we're totally going to because that's really relevant to this issue, I want to take a step back and point out that Magneto's official name at this point, according to Gabriel Haller, is Eric Magnus Lenger. Magnus is his official middle name. Like, guy named Otto Octavius winds up with eight limbs. What are the odds? It's perfect. Of course, Magneto, the master of magnetism, has Magnus as his literal middle name because, like, etymological destiny is totally a thing in the Marvel Universe. I mean, we're talking about a universe where the Vanisher, a man who teleports, has the given name of Telford Porter. I'd forgotten that, and that's my new favorite thing. It's it's quite a thing. It's this this is what I believe um, Mark Wade's Daredevil run named the Victor Von Doom paradox. <laughs> Basically that. Um, also, apparently, the last name Lenger is German for feudal lord, which uh, okay, that's a choice, but. Anyway, the other big thing we learn about Magneto's backstory, which, again, will be retconned away, but for right now is a thing, is that Magneto is not Jewish. He is Romani, specifically Sinti Romani. So, I didn't read the addition of the Sinti Romani background as erasing his Jewishness, which apparently it was supposed to do. Uh, yes, I haven't been able to find any hard facts on this, but it is generally understood that the decision to make Magneto Romani rather than Jewish, because of course both groups were targeted in the Holocaust, uh, was because editorial didn't want to have a villain be Jewish. I guess it was fine to have a villain be Romani instead, but eh. I mean, we're talking about an era when Peter David was one of the signature writers, so... Well, there is that. But also, like, this is, these aren't, again, these aren't things that I see as mutually exclusive. Like, I have friends who are of mixed Romani and Jewish heritage, and, I mean, we both come from from mixed background families, and, again, the idea that it's it's either or or one, in the, or one or the other seems really strange to me, and it also seems doubly strange that that's what readers were expected to extrapolate here. Yeah, I really wish we could get some hard facts on just what the hell to deal with that was. But for the moment, Magneto is apparently Romani and not Jewish. Now, in X-Men Volume 2, number 72, that's where we learned that the whole Lenger and Romani thing, that was part of a cover story. And then in the superlative Magneto Testament miniseries by Greg Pak, that's where we learned that no, Magneto definitely grew up Jewish, and his name is, in fact, Max Eisenhardt. And canonically, that's where we are still today. So after Magneto's hometown of Danzig, no, not that Danzig, we're talking about sad things, don't be silly, was annexed by the Nazis, Magneto's family was sent to Auschwitz. His family died, but that's where he met Magda. And when the camps were liberated in 1945, he married her. But as we've already heard before, when arsonists killed their daughter Anya and Magneto used his magnetic powers to kill them, Magda ran away. And that's the point where Magneto went to Israel to help Holocaust survivors like Gabriel Heller. Which was also where he met Charles Xavier. So in Gabriel's words, Was Magneto a demagogue or an ideologue? Was he a tyrannical madman placing himself above the rights of humanity? Or a righteous zealot fighting for a noble cause? Equality for mutants? Can any one of us truly answer such a question? Man, Magneto has come such a long way from that time he tried to kidnap the world's tiniest man and force him to unlock a tiny UFO so he could take over the world. But has that journey been for the best? Can any of us truly say? Well, 
Adrian, our narrator, is trying to figure that out. As a representative of the newly unified Germany, he meets up with Gabrielle Haller, who's representing Israel, to try to get her help taking down Magneto in the event that Magneto should return. And Gabrielle agrees only if Adrian will commit to capturing rather than killing Magneto, which he does with his fingers effectively crossed behind his back. And this brings me to my favorite, favorite part of the issue, which is where we learn that Gabriel Haller and Moira McTaggart call each other to talk shit about Charles Xavier. Yeah, because he's the ex of both of them, and uh, I guess it didn't didn't go so hot. Well, he's he's the fucking worst ex. He's he was also a pretty terrible partner to both of them. But I really love that, and I really love that that's something that they bond over instead of instead of clashing over. Totally agreed. But yeah, Moira still feels really guilty about the whole X-Men Volume 2, Number 1 through 3 thing, where when Magneto was a baby that one time, she tried to, like, genetically make him not evil. People in superhero comics have things to feel guilty about that I think the rest of us have never even considered. Seriously, and I think a lot about guilt, so, uh, well done, Moira, I guess. So Moira agrees, yeah, if Magneto's out there causing trouble, if there's a way to bring him in and help him, I'll do it. You have my science. And my axe. And of course, there's Holler's sociological researchy stuff. And they also team up with Genetech, the science company people from New Warriors. You remember them? They were in Kings of Pain. They did a little stuff. Yeah. So they all get to work on a plan. But meanwhile, in Key West, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants is hanging out on a boat, tanning in the sun, and having awesome drinks. I really love that these guys are all friends outside of work. Seriously, I do too. So at this point, the Brotherhood, or at least this portion of the Brotherhood, is Blob, Pyro, Toad, and Fantasia. And you remember Fantasia. She's that awesome lady from late New Mutants, early X-Force, who wears like a mask and has white hair and a purple cloak with just like a void under it. Yeah, just like in a recent issue, we saw that she had a body under it. Now she's just a lady in a bikini with purple stuff coming out of her eyes, just like the red stuff coming out of Cyclops' eyes in X-Men Unlimited number one. Dude, she's hanging out on a boat of all times. To that, that That's an entirely justified representation. I feel like this is solidly one. Well, it is, but the thing is, I really liked it when it seemed like she just didn't even have a body at all. She was just this disembodied, scary monster thing. You don't get enough scary monster ladies in comics. I absolutely agree, but I'm also perfectly willing to accept the idea that that's her work void. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. This is her, her house bikini as opposed to her, her work uniform. Well, it's, this, is, this is what she wears when she's out on a yacht and wants to be able to actually drink cocktails instead of just absorbing them or warping them through a space-time void. I guess she also needs hands to hold up the astrophysics book that she's reading, which is a nice little touch. Fantasia, we, like, see so little of her in the Marvel Universe, and all the little details we get here and there, which is, like, maybe three of them, make me want to know so much more about her. Uh, Marvel, bring Fantasia back in a big way. What do you say? Well, as all of the Brotherhood ponders why Fantasia isn't a bigger deal, we meet a new character, and that is Exodus, the Herald of Magneto. We've talked some about Exodus in cold opens. We will get into the details about this very, very complicated individual later on on the podcast. For now, all you really need to know is that he is a floaty and very serious man in a black bodysuit who has some things to say. Well, and not just a black bodysuit. He's got this fuchsia and gold armor, these golden, like, halo wings that make him look like a terrifying saint, a big white cape, a truly epic mullet. I love Exodus's look. He really does look like this 
almost spiritual angelic figure which given the magnetos being played up as a god at this point fits so well also great mullet first of all i really love that like sweet mullet is part of your concept of a spiritual angelic figure second what exodus is here to do is invite fantasia specifically only fantasia to come to quote unquote his haven for mutants with vision and potential Avalon, and it's very, you know, the, the his is implied to be Magneto's. And also Exodus is very specifically not here for Toad or Blob, and mentions, you know, he would have invited Pyro, but Pyro is tainted with what we're later going to find is, you know, an infection of the legacy virus. Yeah, yeah, it's happening to a lot of folks these days. Fantasia is loyal to the working class and decides that she will have nothing to do with with the bosses and she's going to stick it out on earth so exodus says your loss takes back off back in the a plot however genetech assisted by moira's science and gabriel's social science finishes something they call the fugue armor they're gonna have adrian our main character our narrator apprehend Magneto. What this armor does is it's going to make Adrian immune to Magneto's extrasensory electromagnetic sight. So essentially, Magneto will only be able to see Adrian if he can physically see him. That'll give Adrian the opportunity to fire a fancy stun magnet something something gun to knock Magneto out so they can, I don't know, throw him in a big glass prison and have him play chess with Charles Xavier probably. We checked in with planetary astronomer Becca about this one too, and she says... I'm a bit dubious. It reads a lot like, I shall wrap this chicken in bacon to hide the chicken from my cat. Synthetic fabric and electrolyte gel have about the same electromagnetic properties as humans. Like, yes, good call on avoiding metal, but this is some impressive hand wavium. Eh, legit. But I love this scene because as they're telling Adrian about his suit, in the background we see these enormous holograms of Magneto in all of his 90s mulleted glory and these cutaways to his brain and his skeleton. And Magneto's just larger than life. He hasn't even appeared in the comic so far into it. And yet he looms over every single conversation that happens. It's so well done. This is something that I really love when it's done well, you know, comics in particular, but stories about the absence of someone where their negative image, where the space around where they would be is what ultimately shapes the story. Finder Voice is another really good example of this. And there've been a lot of great stories of this general flavor in superhero comics, but this is, this is a very, very solid one. My personal favorite is the issue of Starman where Jack and Superman talk about their fathers. Oh God, yeah, that's that's a phenomenal issue. That's that's the issue of Starman that finally broke me that I actually finally burst into tears on, too. Oh, so good. Wonderful series. Anyway, then the first few Fatal Attractions chapters happen off-panel, and there's a big meeting between all of these experts on mutants. We have Henry Peter Gyrick, we have Val Cooper, we have Colonel Vajan. We have Dr. Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau, and they recap the various Fatal Attractions chapters, and they come up with a plan. Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau is going to throw a grand gala on StarCore 1, his space station. They're all going to wine and dine Magneto. They're going to talk about their childhoods, Miles. their futures, their dreams. Miles. What? What? Miles, Corbeau isn't there, and also, none of that happens. 
God damn it. This storyline would have worked so much more cleanly for everybody involved if he was. Who is there is Adrian, our narrator, and because of the opening incident of this issue, he knows exactly where on Earth Magneto is likely to go, even if he's forsaken the entire rest of the planet, and that is to Magda's grave. Exactly where his life took such a large turn, where Uta died. And so, sure enough... Adrian hides out at Magda's grave and Magneto does come down, a tear running down his face to bid farewell to his wife as he starts the next chapter of his life. And we'll get to what that is when we actually get to Fatal Attractions. But suffice it to say, Magneto's not sticking around at this point. And Adrian's about to fire when he realizes, wait a minute, back in the day, Uta didn't listen when Magneto told him to leave this place, this holy place. Uta didn't care when Magneto said that this wasn't supposed to be a place of violence. Uta drew his gun and yelled all these bigoted racist things and shot at Magneto, and Uta only died because his own bullet bounced off Magneto's shield and hit Uta in his own head. Whoa, 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 whoa. That is not what we saw in the initial flashback at all. And this is a narrative masterstroke because we realize the burning hatred, the seemingly justified burning hatred that's been driving Adrian for all of these years, for decades even, was just him rationalizing something that happened, something that maybe it was Magneto's action but wasn't exactly his fault. He was looking for an outlet for his fury. And this was the only one he could find. So he reshaped his memory. He reshaped the events of the past to make it clean and simple, to make Magneto clean and simple. Because just like he didn't want Magneto to be multiple things, just like that muddied everything up and made everything confusing and conflicting and challenging, he didn't want what happened to his brother to be gray or complex. He wanted to be able to just live on anger because living on anger was so much easier. This makes me think a lot of that Mastermind story in the Uncanny X-Men 1993 annual. You know, that's not a parallel I would have drawn. But yeah, similarly, it's a situation where some people want things to be simple. I wanted things to be simple with Mastermind. I wanted to just hate him, but where the world is a grayer place than that. This issue, I like a lot better. I mean, don't get me wrong. That annual had the executioner, great design. But this issue is, oh, it's so beautiful. And Adrian can't do it. And he drops the gun and Magneto hears that because of course Magneto couldn't sense Adrian in his fugue suit. And Magneto just realizes what was going to happen and he flies away, leaving Adrian to realize. I live because of an act of humanity on the part of the creature I have called inhuman. And he wonders, did he fail his brother, or did he fail humanity by being so defined by hate? And he holds the gun to his head. He's going to kill himself, and he can't do that either. He just collapses. He's lost all that he had, and all that he had was just hatred. And that's the end of the story, and we never see Adrian again. Based on where this story ends... I feel like it's reasonable to conclude that Bova took him in, taught him how to have a healthy range of feelings, and then gently released him back into the wild. Oh, I, I hope so. I mean, I'm a sucker for a good tragic ending, which this is, but I'm also a sucker for nice cow ladies making the world better. Bova's really good, and if anyone deserves a vacation 
on a yacht, it is she. I mean, assuming she likes yachts, she might get seasick. But anyway, I, I want Bova to get to have a nice life and a vacation and be appreciated. Speaking of minions who don't get appreciated a lot, something we didn't touch on talking about this, but that's, that is addressed in this story, which I really appreciated, when they're talking about, you know, flamboyant Silver Age Magneto, is how consistently and viciously abusive he was of his underlings and particularly of Toad. Yeah, Adrian interviews Toad at one point because he's trying to gather as much information as possible about his quarry, and that comes up, and Adrian asks Toad, well, why did you stay with him? And Toad says something that we see in almost every page of the story, which is Magneto was larger than life. We, Whether we liked him or not, we all knew that he was a big deal. We all knew that he was important, and we were all defined by our proximity to who he was and what he represented. And it just ties in so nicely with the, with the themes of the book, or at least with some of the themes of the book. This is such a good issue, and if you want to get Magneto, or at least Magneto as he was characterized as of 1992 and up to 1992 or 3, in, in one convenient package, I really can't think of a better place to go for that. So there we go. X-Men Unlimited number 1 and 2. Both two stellar goddamn issues, two wonderful examples of what the 90s could be at their best. Now, the X-Men Unlimited issues may be fairly self-contained, but they're part of a much larger and more sprawling Marvel Universe, as a result of which you, our listeners, have questions. Eric asks via email, Do you think a mental health professional at the X-Mansion would help our characters and serve the larger story? Has this been done before and I'm just unaware? Or is the strength of the X-Men story their ability to lean on each other, imperfect and confused as they may be, without assistance from, quote, adults? Yes and no. I think a lot of the X-Men would benefit significantly from access to adequate mental health care. Um, I think that its, its absence is a problem. We've seen a couple instances where a team leader has, has brought in a mental health professional. I think the only time that's been done particularly effectively was one time when Danielle Moonstar did it for counseling related to a specific traumatic event for her team. I don't think that's a particularly good story hook, especially as an ongoing thing, and... I'm doubly of that opinion, given how mental health professionals and therapy have historically been portrayed in superhero comics, which is not well. Again, I'm currently watching uh, The Punisher Season 2 and, and have been yelling professional boundaries at the screen on a really regular basis. But for more on this, I'd recommend checking out episode 216, Examining X-Factor, which featured Dr. Andrea Letamendi of the Arkham Sessions, where we talked a lot more about representations of psychology as a field and of, of psychotherapy in, in comics. Basically, if I thought this were written well, it could make a good framing device for a single issue or around as an on-and-off thing with a specific character. But honestly, I don't know that I trust publishers or the folks with the power to say no, to handle this well, and I don't know who currently writing superhero comics I would trust to write it well and accurately. It's, it's, it's something you can do well in fiction. It's something you can do very well as a framing device. I'll point to the podcast, The Bright Sessions, for that. Um, but I just don't see it working as an ongoing framing device in most X-books. Uh, well said, and, and I agree. Now, I was looking into the more factual aspect of, of the question, which is, you know, are there, are there therapists, are there psychologists in the X universe? Of course, you mentioned Doc Samson from that X Factor issue, but more X-specific characters who are psychologists, 
and or therapists. Well, of course, we have Charles Xavier. We have Emma Frost. We have Rory Campbell, who will be meeting an Excalibur soon. So uh, he's a little scary. We have Scarlett McKenzie from Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown. We have also Val Cooper. I'd forgotten, but her doctorate is in psychology. Well, and she's a great example of the fact that having having a doctorate in psychology and being a licensed or practicing therapist are two entirely different things. She is, in fact, the one who calls Doc Samson in because that's not her field. Also, Sigmund Freud, the father of psychology as we know it, is a character in Earth-616 in the Marvel Universe. Ugh. I'm just going to quote marvel.wikia.com because it summarizes it more beautifully than we ever could. Freud was eventually brought back to life by the angel Thrasher, whom he destroyed the brains of using his magical cigar, on the orders of the angel Gabriel in order to defeat Deuteronomy, who had possessed the TV host Ypres. After weakening her with his psychological arguments, he was blasted and killed once again, leaving behind his cigar for Howard the Duck to defeat her. Comics. Right, so, Kevin asks via email, where is the soul sword at the point in continuity where Ilyana dies of the legacy virus? Oh boy. Uh, ambiguous, basically. Now, you may recall from Excalibur number 39, the last chapter of the Prometheum Exchange, that the soul sword was left with Darkoth, the new ruler of Limbo, after Excalibur helped kick Doctor Doom out of Limbo. Apparently, a lady named Shrill with a soul steel eye tried to take it from Darkoth at this point because every time the soul sword was drawn, it caused her pain because she had the same material in her eyeball. It was complicated. But that was totally off panel. We never actually get to see that except in flashback way the hell later. Now, when the re-de-aged Ilyana died in Uncanny X-Men 303, apparently, and we don't see any evidence of this until it's mentioned years later, the Soul Sword silently and subtly rebonded itself into Kitty Pride. You'll recall, of course, that it was bonded to her at the beginning of the Prometheum Exchange, and that one time that the Beyonder killed Ilyana back in Secret Wars. Kitty didn't realize that she had a sword living metaphysically inside her, though, until Warren Ellis's Soul Sword trilogy, the story that I've just been referring to a couple times, when she pulled it out of her tummy and tried to kill Moira McTaggart. It's a long story. We'll totally get to it. It's also a long story that does some things with, with continuity. It's best not to worry too much. Suffice it to say, at this point in Uncanny X-Men 303, it's either in limbo or on its way into Kitty's belly. On that note, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. Today, I am turning over the mic to everyone's favorite electromagnetic spectrum-tearing hate crayon, Sienna Blaze. Do you think I care that I could destroy the world every time I use my powers? Ha! I don't care about it. Anything. One time, Maddie Cape gave me a red and yellow pouch bandolier, which was a really thoughtful gift since it matched my color scheme and I was always looking for a place to keep gum and pens and stuff, and I just threw it away. <laughs> Nothing means anything. And this other time, Jonathan Renteria Elier recommended a trusted friend as a roommate, but instead I just filled my apartment's second bedroom with egg cartons and tires because I totally don't care. <laughs> It's the 90s, and irony and disconnection are cool, and sincerity and earnestness are terrifying! Eat my shorts, man! And at this point, maybe it's better we just turn it over to the angry Claremontian narrator. It must be nice to know where you come from, Josh Mackey. Your origins, your age, the sort of incidental information most people take for granted. 
that none of that information is what you currently think it is, and that by this time next week your name will always have been Nathan Kelly, is really neither here nor there. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be throwing science out the window and hiding the knives. As Fatal Attractions begins in earnest.